Hello, my name is Jolie. Before I actually set all this up, I spent five minutes searching for insects in this room because I have a bearded dragon and occasionally I have escapees. Uh-oh. So you can you can rest assured that there will be no insects on camera. <laughs> <laughs> or at least if there are, you will not see them. Hello, I'm Jam. I don't like bugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Our two intros are like parallel opposites. My yeah. intro is maybe there's bugs and your intro is I just don't like bugs. Unless it's like a ladybug or dragonfly. You like, oh, see dragonflies? I remember getting bit by those things. Really? So I do not like it when they're, I like looking at them from a distance, but they, they bite. It's not yeah, comfortable. I've never like interacted with one. Like I don't like bugs that will scurry past me. <laughs> Otherwise it's fine. So you like bugs that are brave, like brave bugs. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. You ever read The Grouchy Ladybug? I don't know if you know this about me, but I am closer to 40 than I am to three. Well, it's like Eric Carle. Oh, okay. So yeah, no, I didn't yeah. read that one. Well, it's about a ladybug that's grumpy and he's like eating <laughs> aphids. And he's like, like, these are my aphids or whatever. And he gets in a fight with a ladybug, but then he ends up like threatening a bunch of animals like all the way till he sees a whale being like, like, I'm going to fight you. Or like, you want to fight or something? You and don't want to fight a whale. Exactly. And everyone's like, no. And then he just ends up back on the leaf eating the aphids. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. <laughs> it's long. Well, you know what else is long? Hold on. Let me rephrase that. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. Wait. You know what other story is long? Oh, this is a segue. It's a seg. I'm Into seg your episode. Hold on. Let me segue. <laughs> Usually a segue is not so obvious, but I fucked it up by There's a being segue nasty. Happening. The crazy story of Andrew Wakefield and his MMR vaccine link to autism. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give a warning because in a portion of this, I am going to talk about things like medical treatments that were done to children. And it is deeply fucking distressing. I didn't enjoy reading about it. So I know that you're not going to enjoy hearing about it. And if that is the type of thing that is going to trigger anything or activate any sort of like really uncomfortable, like stressful, bad feelings, maybe this isn't the one for you to listen to. So it's a it's a very short thing. And I, I don't get as much into detail. Just as skip ahead. Sources. Just press that little 30 second button with the arrow. Yeah. And you know what I might even do is I'll like give you a warning when I edit Oh, that's it. a great idea. I'll just be like, hey, the bad stuff's coming. <laughs> yeah. And say, skip to this time frame. She's got you. Let's talk about Andrew Wakefield. So you know that for the past 20 years, anti-vaccination has been like ramping up, but it's not actually a new thing. It's been going on since inoculations were available at all. Makes sense. Yeah. Because you know what? If you're going to like put things in a child, mm -hmm. it's a little bit terrifying. It's perfectly valid to be a little bit concerned. At the same time, hopefully you have some respect for the scientific community that like really studies and researches this stuff before it comes out. Mm -hmm. Not to say that there are never mistakes because obviously things happen and statistics are only comforting until it happens to you. Right. It's like what, like 
one in like 30 million or whatever. Like, what, like but what if I'm the one? Yeah. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> That's not comforting if it happens to you. So, yeah. and especially if it happens to your child, it's really not comforting at that point. So I totally understand if you're like, you know, vaccine injury is real and it happened to me or it happened to somebody that I know. But then also we have to think, Okay, so that's a horrible, horrible experience that nobody should have to go through. But at the same time, it is incredibly rare. So we're going to talk about one man who created such a paradigm shift in the way that we talk about vaccines and them not being like, you know, when the polio vaccine came out, people were like, oh, my God, it's like a miracle. It's a it's a it's so amazing that it would be in like the top 10 of inventions that helped our world. Mm -hmm. Polio was this debilitating virus that was Mm -hmm. killing people and maiming children and Mm -hmm. making it so that they couldn't walk anymore. And then we got the vaccine and people were like, wow. And we eradicated it. Uh Completely gone. Aren't there cases of something that had been like basically eradicated, like coming back now? We're going to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. We are going to talk about that. The newest wave of anti-vax propaganda is almost single-handedly based on the research of one particular now Mm ex-doctor who created this, you know, autism vaccine link that was entirely fabricated. And when Mm -hmm. I say entirely fabricated, I mean like when you look at the original study you can't get a copy of it that doesn't say retracted in big red letters. Wow. And it's every single page. Unreal. Retracted. When I was looking at that, I thought that was your notes. Like, don't read this part. And I'm like, why'd she bring that over with her? I mean, I also have like all of my chicken scratch trying to figure out what the fuck is real and what wasn't real because spoiler alert, not much of it was real. But yeah, it's, it's all based on this paper, this giant fucking paper that, was created by this man who didn't know what he was talking about. So we're going to talk about Andrew Wakefield, formerly Dr. Wakefield, now just fuckhead Wakefield. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it. One more thing before I start. A lot of my research was based on the work of this man. His name is Brian Deere. He is an investigative journalist, and he wrote this amazing book called the doctor who fooled the world. I do not get into as much detail as he did because he is incredible. And he did this over a period of like almost 10 years. Wow. So, <laughs> and he pretty much single-handedly took this guy down. Like he, he just did so much research into this that it is insane that people still believe anything that Andrew Wakefield has yeah. to say. But it's like people that believe and anything, don't want to read the contrary. Truth. You know? Truth. And it is very hard to change people's minds once they've decided that something is real. And mm-hmm. that's like a, a thing that has been proven time and time again. So I totally get it. It's difficult to change if something that you've heard lines up with a belief mm-hmm. system that you already have. But mm-hmm. this guy, this book specifically, is so worth the purchase that I highly encourage people to actually purchase the book and support this guy because he spent so much time compiling this evidence and he has way more evidence than I'm going to be able to get into. All right. All right. So let's learn a little bit about who I've labeled Dr. Dumbass. (laughs) So I have a quote from Brian Deere. Tall and square-headed with hooded eyes and a booming voice, he was the son of doctors, a neurologist, and a family practitioner, had grown up in Bath, a prosperous West of England spa town, and joined the Royal Free in November 1988 after training in Toronto, Canada. His demeanor was languid, he was privately educated, and born in 1956, he was a lingering example of the presumed honor of the upper middle class. And seriously, when this guy talks, he's like the epitome of like a posh British gentleman. (laughs) 
he is like the type of guy that if you were thinking like British physician, this is the guy that you would think of. <laughs> so I just quoted from Brian Deere. He he was the the son of two parents who were doctors. One of them, a celebrated doctor. His name was Graham Wakefield. Graham was a neurologist. He was apparently a great doctor. What was really interesting about learning about him is that everybody commented on the fact that he would really talk to people and then form his opinion on a diagnosis based on that primarily and then use like MRIs and other things or I don't know if I don't think MRIs were available at the time but use diagnostics to confirm his theory. Yeah. And I guess that just wasn't, that, like, a, wasn't thing a thing that people did. Because that like is what it is now. Yeah. That's just like <laughs> I I looked at that and I was like well yeah. Cool. <laughs> what did they do before? Just like get in here. We're scanning. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. dig around with a pick and see what I can find. Oh my god. Ew. <laughs> Um, And then his mother was a general practitioner. People described her as just stern and having almost like a mean streak to cover up like her sensitivities. Mm. When I saw interviews of her, obviously interviews of an old like white lady versus (laughs) interviews of like a young white lady are going to look very different. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're coming close to the end of your life, you're going to start to try to find Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) As I used to say. Get prepared. Get prepared for like the end of your times and and hopefully like get a little bit more protection from the young people in your (laughs) life. Like you just want to be super nice to make sure that you're going to be cared for. Mm -hmm. I I don't know what the truth is, but it seemed to me like she was kind of a hard ass, you know? Her description of Andrew as a child is very like, he was very meek. He did his business. He was very quiet. She describes her house as like, her, her house and her other like four children as like kind of rough and tumble. Yeah. And then Andrew was just this like young, like soft-spoken, no trouble. Like if she says, your room is dirty. He's like, I'm so sorry. I will fix it. Oh and he gosh. just goes and fixes it instead of saying, well, I'm kind of busy. And you know, I was doing stuff. And Angel. He was like a little angel child, right? Now you can see where like him being like the easygoing, low maintenance child versus like these rough and tumble other children might have made him get some like preferential treatment, Mm -hmm. right? So he wasn't good in school. It's not like he was bad. He was just like average, whatever. He didn't get like the worst grades. He did have to apparently take his exit exams more than once. But he was amazing at athletics. Like that is where he shined. And that is really where you started to see like this kind of arrogance, this larger than life charisma, Mm -hmm. this like aggression really come out. Yeah. So he was like a leader of the rugby team. Rugby is like a fucking insane sport, by the way. Yeah, bye. it's like super duper rough. It's so fucking aggressive. Uh-huh. It's like watching um, MMA fighters play with a ball. Yeah, They're basically. Like, why are yeah, you doing intense. this to each other? Where are your teeth? <laughs> What's happening? So there's like this dichotomy, right? Where he's like this soft-spoken, well-mannered, upper-class Mm-hmm. British student and but then, then this, like, like fucking aggressive uh-huh. like but charismatic leader of his rugby team <laughs> I don't know how those two things work <laughs> who together who are you right like exactly who are you like I said he wasn't the best student but he graduated and then he ended up going to the school where both of his parents went and met each other which was St. Mary's um, St. Mary's Hospital Medical School which is presently Imperial College School of Medicine He completed his initial medical coursework in 1981, and in 85, he became fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. So he studied gastroenterology, and he actually, I believe, met his wife, Carmel, well, 
not his wife anymore, his now ex-wife, Carmel at St. Mary's. And she was studying medicine and surgery. He basically became a surgeon, but when it got down to it, he did not like working with like patients. Yeah. It just wasn't his thing. What was just like, okay, I'll put on a lab coat because you have to do some of that kind of stuff to, I guess, be a doctor. Yeah. It makes sense. Uh Like you want to be, you want to have your toes and everything so that you can figure out what actually fits for Uh your personality. He put on the lab coat and he basically didn't take it off. He was just like, this is like patience, not for me, not interested. Mm -hmm. But what also started to happen here is I guess, you know, resecting intestines and stuff like that was just not his business. He was just like, there's no glory in this. Like, like one person is going to thank me, not interested. (laughs) So what ended up happening was he started talking to people behind the scenes about how he wanted to win a Nobel Prize. Like, you know, the people who created the polio vaccine. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like, that's, you know, this is this is what I want for my life. Resecting intestines, doing colonoscopies, not interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with other people's shit, literally. literally. <laughs> <laughs> what I do want to do is have awards and have people look at me. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of why he started to get more into the lab aspect of it. Because working one-on-one with patients, probably not going to get you there. Mm-hmm. Doing like major medical research has more of an opportunity totally. of that kind of… Groundbreaking stuff. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So from 1986 to 1989, he actually worked in Toronto. He was examining tissue rejection issues associated with small intestine transplantation. So cool. But he was working under somebody, I believe, at that time. It wasn't like his business. In Canada now. Yeah. So he's in Canada. But then he came back to London. And I believe at this time he was married. I think in Toronto he was married to Carmel. I had a hard time finding dates for that kind of stuff. I don't know why. You know, he was already married. He was coming back to London. He ended up joining the Royal Free Hospital, which was also like a teaching hospital. And I think it's called Royal Free Hospital and College of Medicine. Mm. I'm not entirely sure though. Yeah. Because now it is two different names. <laughs> it's Interesting. like two hospitals that have joined together, which I yeah, guess is yeah. like a thing that happens a lot. Like people get bought out. Mm-hmm. So Royal Free was a very close to bankrupt hospital that had an, apparently an amazing liver program. Huh. When he joined Royal Free, he specifically had a clause in his contract stating that he would not operate as a clinician. And I don't know if that was because he asked for that or if that's because they said, if you're going to do this, you're not working with patients too. You don't have enough experience. So, But also he didn't like people. Yeah, he didn't seem to really… It's not that he didn't like people. I think he liked people just fine. He just wanted something that had more availability of like being a big deal. Yeah. So just keep that in the back of your minds. He's not a clinician. He does not work with patients, period. Okay. He is very specifically not a pediatric clinician. And he like focused on guts. He focused on guts. However… He was mainly focused on guts in a lab situation, which means he was working with like mice. Yeah. Not so much with people. Humans. So his earliest research studies actually proved him to be pretty competent. He wasn't bad at what he did at all. And I think he kind of got a little chuffed, like a little like full of himself Uh and started thinking, well, if I'm going to make a mark, what exactly am I going to make a mark with? So you have to know that at the time, only in 1971, I believe, was the MMR vaccine released in America. It hadn't been released yet until 1988 in the UK. People are always like fussy about new vaccines and Mm -hmm. that's understandable. So it's not like 
Americans weren't like, well, I'm seeing this in my child and I don't know if that's right. All of yeah. that was happening in America. But when it came to UK, some of that was starting to happen around the time that he was trying to figure out what his next moves were going to be. Okay. Apparently, he tells this story at some fucking autism conference. Carmel was out of town and I was drinking at the pub and I just had this thought to myself, what if Crohn's and irritable bowel disease are linked because measles lives in the intestines of people who have been infected. He's like, let me just spoil it here. That's literally not possible. It's just not. Yeah. Because your intestines, your gastrointestinal like situation is hostile to that kind of shit. So he very quickly started on a campaign of like, okay, Royal Free, this is, this is what I have. This is my idea. This is what we're going to do. And he created like an initial paper. Most gastroenterologists were like, no. <laughs> and he didn't prove any of his theory. Yeah. But I feel like he almost kind of got defensive about it. He's like, no, 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 no. You guys, like, I know that you don't think that this is right. And I know that I technically didn't prove it. And it was just like <laughs> an introductory paper. And like, it didn't go well. But I mean, it's, it's, you're gonna, you're gonna see. These are facts. These are gonna be facts. You just see. <laughs> I'm gonna make them facts, guys. Let's talk about some true facts just about autism, the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella in general, just so that we have an understanding of what's going on. One thing, though, that I am unclear about, if he's trying to make this link to, like, autism, what does that have to do with Crohn's? With autism, oftentimes, like you said, there is a special diet that goes with autism mm -hmm. because a lot of times uh, people who suffer from autism have additional gut-related issues. It's not always that they have like irritable bowel syndrome or that they have Crohn's or something of that nature, yeah. although sometimes those things are present. What usually is the issue is that very selective eating tends to make your gut health Worse. Yeah, that makes sense. So not drinking enough water, you know, super mm -hmm. selective eating as far as like textures or like maybe not wanting fruits and vegetables, maybe not wanting whole grains. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to keep, especially profoundly autistic people. It's very difficult to get them something that they will actually eat. Yeah, because like textures. Yeah, and... yeah, it's a big deal. And like when you feel like you don't have control of your body or like the way that you relate to the world, I'm sure controlling food is mm -hmm. also a component of it even if it's not like a something that they're actively thinking about. Like, I'm going to control my food because it's the only thing I can control. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I mean, you hear about these stories about children who are profoundly autistic, but once they're given a, a device that they can speak with, that they can communicate with, they have thoughts in their head that people had no idea. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's like, they'll tell you, like, I feel like this. I feel like I'm trapped in my body. I feel like there's too much going on around me and I can't control it and I can't talk to people. Like, they'll actually say all of this. Oh, wow. And that's wow. not all of them. Like, not all of them are able to. Yeah. But, like, if you think about it like that, think about those cases and then think about what profoundly autistic people must be suffering every single day. Yeah. It makes sense. Like, it would make sense to me to just control my diet. Like, this is the thing that I can control. Mm -hmm. I get to decide what I eat. I can't yeah. do anything else, but I can do this. Yeah. Because <laughs> they can't force me to eat a vegetable. It makes me feel sad. It is really sad. And I mean, thinking about it in those terms, thinking about how heartbreaking it is to watch your child potentially regress, like that doesn't happen very often, but watching your child regress or watching your child just not develop in a way that makes you comfortable that when you die, they're going to be okay. 
that makes you understand a little bit more how people like clung to this answer. Yeah, like needing a a, a reason. Yeah, there has to be some yeah. reason that my child is going through this mm-hmm. because it's traumatic. You feel like you have a quote end quote normal child, and I don't believe normality really exists. It's a spectrum, but having a normal child and then realizing very quickly within their lives that you now have to think about what happens when you die. Yeah. That's not something that any parent should have to think about, right? Mm -mm. So let's talk a little bit about autism. Autism is a spectrum disorder, and it can go from people who are very um, productive, who are able to operate within societal norms, able to hold a job, able to like do everyday basic, like boring ass shit that nobody wants to do, but (laughs) everyone has to do. Yeah. And then it goes from that all the way to the profoundly disabling Mm -hmm. autism, right? Where you can't speak, where you have repetitive behaviors that you can't control, Mm -hmm. where you have like frustration and angry outbursts, you can't control your emotions. Like there is such a thing as regressive autism, but they're finding that that's less of a thing than they previously thought. And more likely it's that a child already exhibited symptoms, but the symptoms were so small that they were unnoticed. Yeah. And then just like with maturity or whatever, they came out more. Yeah. So the symptoms were usually small and unnoticed, but then over time, it it's like it compiles and you can't always tell like mm-hmm. how long it's going to take for a child to exhibit full autistic spectrum disorder yeah. symptoms. Like sometimes it, it happens within a few months. Sometimes it happens within a few years. Yeah. It's really such a confusing disorder because we don't know what causes it. Uh-huh. We know that there there has to be some genetic component because if you have a child who has autism, you're more likely to have another child that has autism born to you. Interesting. I've thought before that it has something to do with like diet of the mother. There are environmental factors and some of them can happen during pregnancy, but it's less likely that it's about um, the diet and it's more likely that it's about potential illnesses or viruses caught by the mother while the the fetus was developing. Interesting. Yeah, because I thought like maybe pesticides or something like eating pesticides. So yeah, people people are concerned about pesticides. They're concerned about different viruses that could affect the neural development Mm -hmm. of the fetus. Yeah, and and when I say that, I just want to be clear. I'm not like trying to shame the no, mom, no, like no, not no. at all. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's hard because it's like it's it's just tricky to talk about all around, and there's there's no way to talk about it without potentially stepping on someone's toes, especially if you're not the parent of an autistic uh-huh. child yeah. or if you're not a physician who treats mm-hmm. autism. Just saying that right off the bat. Yeah, you like that I'm we're just, not experts. Oh, totally. And I'm just kind of being inquisitive. There are assumed environmental factors that are more likely related to things that happened in utero. And there are presumed genetic factors. And some of it's just chance. Yeah. The people who are researching this have found nothing that causes autism in a child that was previously considered neurotypical. Yeah. There are usually signs that that is going to be a thing. And usually, even if you look further, sometimes autism-like behaviors actually come from uh, genetic abnormalities like chromosomal deletions and things of that nature that might not affect you physically, like the way that you look, Uh but they affect the way that your brain works. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not that the symptoms don't start early because the symptoms start almost immediately, like within the first few months of the child's life. What, like lack of eye contact? Lack of eye contact. Um not really wanting to be held as much, but that's not always a thing for autistic people. Most of the time, if a parent is not seeing symptoms, they're going to start seeing symptoms at around 12 months to sometimes even upwards of 18 months. 
is when they really start to notice that things have kind of taken a little bit of a turn. Yeah. So around that time is when the MMR vaccine is usually administered. It just happens to be these two things happen at around the same time. I mean, any normal person would be like, this must have caused it because I didn't see it before and I see it now. So Mm -hmm. surely this is the answer. So when people say, I think the MMR vaccine caused my child to be autistic, I actually don't blame them. Yeah. I really don't because it's such a fucking painful thing for somebody to go through. Mm -hmm. And because the two things happen together, it makes sense that you would think that. At the same time, then using that feeling in your heart to then tell other people not to get their child children vaccinated is fucking dangerous. It just yeah. really is. Especially when there's absolutely no evidence. Baby, there's nothing that you could have done for your child. It had nothing to do with anything that you did. Mm-hmm. You can't fix this autism. This autism happened and your child is here and hopefully they're healthy and you can figure out a way to work with it. Yeah. They might not be neurotypical, but I would rather have an alive child out. Mm-hmm. So Royal Free was a very close to bankrupt hospital that had an, apparently an amazing liver program. Huh. When he joined Royal Free, he specifically had a clause in his contract stating that he would not operate as a clinician. And I don't know if that was because he asked for that or if that's because they said... If you're going to do this, you're not working with patients, too. Yeah. Like you don't have enough experience. So, But also, he didn't like people. Yeah, he didn't seem to really... It's not that he didn't like people. I think he liked people just fine. He just wanted something that had more availability of, like, being a big deal. Yeah. So just keep that in the back of your minds. He's not a clinician. He does not work with patients, period. Okay. He is very specifically not a pediatric clinician. And he, like, focused on guts. He focused on guts. However... He was mainly focused on guts in a lab situation, which means he was working with like mice. Yeah. Not so much with people. Humans. So his earliest research studies actually proved him to be pretty competent. He wasn't bad at what he did at all. And I think he kind of got a little chuffed, like a little like full of himself Uh and started thinking, well, if I'm going to make a mark, what exactly am I going to make a mark with? So you have to know that at the time, only in 1971, I believe, was the MMR vaccine released in America. It hadn't been released yet until 1988 in the UK. People are always like fussy about new vaccines and Mm -hmm. that's understandable. So it's not like Americans weren't like, well, I'm seeing this in my child and I don't know if that's right. All of that was happening in America. But when it came to UK, some of that was starting to happen around the time that he was trying to figure out what his next moves were going to be. Okay. Apparently, he tells this story at some fucking autism conference. Carmel was out of town and I was drinking at the pub and I just had this thought to myself, what if Crohn's and irritable bowel disease are linked because measles lives in the intestines of people who have been infected? He's like, let me just spoil it here. That's literally not possible. It's just not. Yeah. Because your intestines, your gastrointestinal like situation is hostile to that kind of shit. So he very quickly started on a campaign of like, okay, Royal Free, this is this is what I have. This is my idea. This is what we're going to do. And he created like an initial paper. Most gastroenterologists were like, 
No. <laughs> and he didn't prove any of his theory. Yeah. I feel like he almost kind of got defensive about it. He's like, no, 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 no. You guys, like, I know that you don't think that this is right. And I know that I technically didn't prove it. And it was just like <laughs> an introductory paper. And like, it didn't go well. But I mean, it's, it's, you're gonna, you're gonna see. These are facts. These are gonna be facts. You just see. <laughs> I'm gonna make them facts, guys. Let's talk about some true facts just about autism, the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella in general, just so that we have an understanding of what's going on. One thing, though, that I am unclear about, if he's trying to make this link to like autism, what does that have to do with Crohn's? With autism, oftentimes, like you said, there is a special diet that goes with autism Mm -hmm. because a lot of times uh, people who suffer from autism have additional gut-related issues. It's not always that they have like irritable bowel syndrome or that they have Crohn's or something of that nature, although sometimes those things are present. What usually is the issue is that very selective eating tends to make your gut health Yeah, that makes sense. So not drinking enough water, you know, super Mm -hmm. selective eating as far as like textures or like maybe not wanting fruits and vegetables, maybe not wanting whole grains. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to keep, especially profoundly autistic people. It's very difficult to get them something that they will actually eat. Yeah, because like textures. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. And like when you feel like you don't have control of your body or like the way that you relate to the world, I'm sure controlling food is Mm -hmm. also a component of it even if it's not like a something that they're actively thinking about. Like, I'm going to control my food because it's the only thing I can control. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I mean, you hear about these stories about children who are profoundly autistic, but once they're given a, a device that they can speak with, that they can communicate with, they have thoughts in their head that people had no idea. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's like, they'll tell you like, I feel like this. I feel like I'm trapped in my body. I feel like there's too much going on around me and I can't control it and I can't talk to people. Like, they'll actually say all of this. Oh, wow. And that's not all of them. Like, not all of them are able to. But, like, if you think about it like that, think about those cases and then think about what profoundly autistic people must be suffering every single day. Yeah. It makes sense. Like, it would make sense to me to just control my diet. Like, this is the thing that I can control. Mm -hmm. I get to decide what I eat. I can't do anything else, but I can do this. Yeah. (laughs) Because they can't force me to eat a vegetable. It makes me feel sad. It is really sad. And I mean, thinking about it in those terms, thinking about how heartbreaking it is to watch your child potentially regress, like that doesn't happen very often, but watching your child regress or watching your child just not develop in a way that makes you comfortable that when you die, they're going to be okay. That makes you understand a little bit more how people like clung to this answer. Yeah, like needing a a, a reason. Yeah, there has to be some yeah. reason that my child is going through this mm-hmm. because it's traumatic. You feel like you have a quote, end quote, normal child. And I don't believe normality really exists. It's a spectrum. But having a normal child and then realizing very quickly within their lives that you now have to think about what happens when you die. Yeah. That's not something that any parent should have to think about, right? Mm-mm. So let's talk a little bit about autism. Autism is a spectrum disorder, and it can go from people who are very um, productive, who are able to operate within societal norms, able to hold a job, able to like do everyday basic, like boring ass shit that nobody wants to do, but <laughs> everyone has to do. Yeah. And then it goes from that all the way to the profoundly disabling mm-hmm. autism, right? Where you can't speak, 
where you have repetitive behaviors that you can't control, mm-hmm. where you have like frustration and an angry outbursts, you can't control your emotions. Like there is such a thing as regressive autism, but they're finding that that's less of a thing than they previously thought. And more likely it's that a child already exhibited symptoms, but the symptoms were so small that they were unnoticed. Yeah. And then just like with maturity or whatever, they came out more. Yeah. So the symptoms were usually small and unnoticed. But then over time, it it's like it compiles. And you can't always tell like mm-hmm. how long it's going to take for a child to exhibit full autistic spectrum disorder yeah. symptoms. Like sometimes it, it happens within a few months. Sometimes it happens within a few years. Yeah. It's really such a confusing disorder because we don't know what causes it. Uh-huh. We know that there there has to be some genetic component because if you have a child who has autism, you're more likely to have another child that has autism born to you. Interesting. I've thought before that it has something to do with like diet of the mother. There are environmental factors and some of them can happen during pregnancy, but it's less likely that it's about um, the diet and it's more likely that it's about potential illnesses or viruses caught by the mother while the the fetus was developing. Interesting. Yeah, because I thought like maybe pesticides or something like eating pesticides. So yeah, people people are concerned about pesticides. They're concerned about different viruses that could affect the neural development Mm -hmm. of the fetus. Yeah, and and when I say that, I just want to be clear. I'm not like trying to shame the no, mom, no, like no, not no. at all. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's hard because it's like it's it's just tricky to talk about all around, and there's there's no way to talk about it without potentially stepping on someone's toes, especially if you're not the parent of an autistic uh-huh. child yeah. or if you're not a physician who treats mm-hmm. autism. Just saying that right off the bat. Yeah, like I'm just, we're not experts. Oh, totally. And I'm just kind of being inquisitive. There are assumed environmental factors that are more likely related to things that happened in utero. And there are presumed genetic factors. And some of it's just chance. Yeah. The people who are researching this have found nothing that causes autism in a child that was previously considered neurotypical. Yeah. There are usually signs that that is going to be a thing. And usually, even if you look further, sometimes autism-like behaviors actually come from uh, genetic abnormalities like chromosomal deletions and things of that nature that might not affect you physically, like the way that you look, Uh but they affect the way that your brain works. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not that the symptoms don't start early because the symptoms start almost immediately, like within the first few months of the child's life. What, like lack of eye contact? Lack of eye contact. Um not really wanting to be held as much, but that's not always a thing for autistic people. Most of the time, if a parent is not seeing symptoms, they're going to start seeing symptoms at around 12 months to sometimes even upwards of 18 months is when they really start to notice that things have kind of taken a little bit of a turn. Yeah. So around that time is when the MMR vaccine is usually administered. It just happens to be these two things happen at around the same time. I mean, any normal person would be like, this must have caused it because I didn't see it before and I see it now. So Mm -hmm. surely this is the answer. So when people say, I think the MMR vaccine caused my child to be autistic, I actually don't blame them. Yeah, I really don't because it's such a fucking painful thing for somebody to go through. Mm -hmm. And because the two things happen together, it makes sense that you would think that. At the same time, then using that feeling in your heart to then tell other people not to get their child children vaccinated is fucking dangerous. It just yeah. really is, especially when there's absolutely no evidence. Baby, there's nothing that you could have done for your child. It had nothing to do with anything that you did. Mm-hmm. 
you can't fix this autism. This autism happened and your child is here and hopefully they're healthy and you can figure out a way to work with it. Yeah. They might not be neurotypical, but I would rather have an alive child than a dead child. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. I guess also during that time, there's like those like big leaps in mental capacity. Yeah. You know, like for babies and toddlers. So So when you don't see those steps happening, you're like, oh shit. Yeah. You know, because those start what, like three months, six months or something is when like, yeah, you see growth in a child. And like I said, there, there is some evidence for like a regressive autism type, but more and more as people research, they're seeing like, no, there's actually like these children always had deficits. They weren't severe. Yeah. They weren't enough to be noticed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, you know, I have one symptom. I have two symptoms. And all of a sudden you're like on WebMD. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it all adds up. Yeah. So then the other thing is that a lot of this is parent recollection. Mm-hmm. If you are a parent of a very small child, you are probably sleep deprived. You're not noticing everything. Like nobody can notice everything about their child. It's fucking impossible. <laughs> you're not going to notice all of the signs, all of the symptoms. So it might make sense to you because based on your recollection, all of these things happened at this exact time. Yeah. But it's just not possible to get like a full scope of information unless you are watching the child constantly. Yeah. Or if you're like looking for that sort of you're thing. You're recording it. You'd have to be recording it and being like, mm, see, I looked here and she did not look at me. I thought she was looking at me, but she was actually looking past me. Well, and also like a, as a new parent or something, you don't know anything. As a new parent, you're probably like, Everything that happens, you're looking it up and you're like, is this normal? (laughs) My child is constantly chewing her toenails. Is this normal? Oh, okay. It's normal, but it's nasty. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about inoculations, let's talk about like the first inoculation. And it was actually for smallpox. So the smallpox inoculation was actually created by, nastily enough, taking cowpox pus from a lesion on a cow and injecting it into the person that you wanted to inoculate. And how they got to this was that they saw dairy maids and cow farmers, if they got cowpox, they weren't getting smallpox. Uh, so the the two are related, but yeah. one is way milder than the other. And if you're going to get one, let's just have it be cowpox. That's how everything kind of started. They were like, okay, so we see that if you get this kind of small version of it, yeah, you're not going to get the big, like, life-altering version of it. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, that's kind of like the idea of vaccines now. Like you're getting a weakened version of a virus Uh to help your body prepare for fighting off a big version of the virus. So that's measles, mumps, and rubella, right? That's Mm -hmm. the, the big thing that we're talking about. That's like the main point of all of this is that people are concerned that we're actually giving children a real virus that can really fucking hurt them and live in their body past the vaccination. But let's just talk about how vaccines work. All right. So there are a few kinds of vaccines, but the one that we're going to talk about today is the live attenuated. And attenuated just means that it is, in fact, a live virus Mm -hmm. that you're being injected with, but it's a significantly weakened virus. So think cowpox versus smallpox. Mm -hmm. Significantly weakened, your body is going to have a chance to create the cells that it needs to fight off the virus because Mm -hmm. it is so weak, you probably won't feel any like real repercussions from the vaccine. That doesn't mean that everybody doesn't feel it. It just means that if you have a healthy immune system, if you're Mm -hmm. not immunocompromised, if you're not already sick, Mm -hmm. then you are probably, you might get like a little bleh 
Yeah. And then you'll be fine. I got sick after the COVID vaccine. I did too. Yeah. I got real fucking sick. My arm was so sore. I was like but crying in also, bed. Also, I wonder if that's because we really hadn't been out. Right. In like almost years at that point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're right. My first cold that I got, I felt so sick. Yeah. Because you're, you're not around like viruses. Your body's not used to having to produce those things. Yeah. You're just like stuck in your house and you're away from everybody. Yeah. Kind of wonderful and horrible all at the same time. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> With Alive Attenuated, you are getting that weakened version so that your body can produce white blood cells. The white blood cells produce, um, in addition to that, like a type of memory cell that will remember the virus for if you yeah, it's like it Yeah, it's like training. The white blood cells are right. like... Right. It's like a boxing ring, right? You're not going to immediately fight Evander Holyfield or whoever is a boxer now. Because I... <laughs> you're dating I have, yourself. I don't know either. I couldn't even God. tell you. I have no idea who boxes. So you're not going to immediately go up against Evander Holyfield. You're going to have... You're going to stair-step it, right? Yeah. So that's kind of what's happening with the vaccinations. Mm -hmm. So now talking about measles, mumps, and rubella because that shit's scary as heal. Oh, and by the way, I want to say that there are risks associated with every vaccine, but the risks tend to be a lot less than the risk of contracting the illness. So I'm not saying that there are no risks to vaccination. There mm -hmm. are. And that's why some people cannot be vaccinated. Yeah. Let's talk about measles. Measles is actually the worst of the things that we're talking about vaccinating against. Measles is a highly contagious infectious disease caused by the measles virus. That's why it's called measles. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Guys. Um, <laughs> symptoms usually develop 10 to 12 days after exposure and last about 7 to 10 days. Initial symptoms usually include fever, often greater than 104 degrees. And if you don't know. That is so That high. is so fucking dangerous. Mm -hmm. You can have a stroke mm -hmm. with that kind of fever. Cough, runny nose, inflamed eyes. So measles can be serious in all age groups. However, there are several age groups that are more likely to suffer from measles complications. And that is children younger than five years of age, adults older than 20 years of age. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> pregnant women and people with compromised immune systems. Okay, that's a lot of people. That's so many fucking people, right? Yeah. And that's the reason that it is mandated in schools to have uh -huh. your MMR vaccination. Yeah. Because there are so many people who have very young siblings, so many people who have like mothers who are pregnant or, uh -huh. you know, parents who are pregnant rather, um, people who live in the house with their grandma. Totally. The rate for herd immunity actually changes based on the disease, right? Based yeah. on the, the virus. So the rate for herd immunity for measles, I believe, is 94%. So 94% of the population has got to be vaccinated. Yeah. For well, I mean, I know you're going to talk about it, but I remember a couple of years ago, like the daycares or whatever, were getting um, measles or mumps or something. That's all based on this shit. Yeah. The complications for measles are pretty fucking bad, but one of them is subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. It's a fatal disease of the central nervous system that results from measles. It's like kind of like meningitis. Yeah, I guess it's something similar to that. I like always think I have meningitis whenever I like have a cold and like my neck hurts. I'm like I'm dying. I'm dying. I smell toast. Oh, you're <laughs> cooking toast. That's cool. Good. Take me to I'm the hospital. Not, I don't want to stroke. Um, <laughs> I've actually had mumps. Have you had mumps? I don't think so. No. So I had mumps when I was in my early 20s and I let my vaccines lapse because I was like, what? I got vaccinated. And then when I went in, my doctor was like, you have mumps. <laughs> I was like, what? I got vaccinated. He was like, when? I'm like, I don't know. Like, yeah. When are you, you supposed to get vaccinated for a mom? Every 10 years is the MMR. 
Okay, maybe I need a booster. Yeah, so you're supposed to get boosters for all of this shit. So I got really sick and I was sick for about three and a half weeks. When I was sick, I could barely talk. I could barely eat. I had a hard time sleeping even though I was really tired. I had a fever. I had like a headache, general body achiness. But then I also was losing hearing in my ears, which is a thing that can happen. Uh, you can also apparently get pneumonia and stuff like that yeah. from mumps. So mumps like is, hearing from like boogers in your ears or like… No, I, I have permanent hearing loss. Oh my god. Yeah. Because wow. it affects like all of this area. Wow. You know, I, I still have pretty good hearing because I already had excellent hearing. So it didn't take away everything. But yeah. the hearing in my left ear is markedly different from the hearing in my right ear. The hearing in my left ear is worse. So only talk shit about you when I'm on the left hand side. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's when you do all your like underhanded like comments. <laughs> you look nice today. It's taking you hours. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck, I'll stand on the wrong side. <laughs> I think for for the mumps, it's an 84% is, is what you need to be at to yeah. have herd immunity. Well, I'm glad you didn't get like, get like dead. <laughs> get like deaded. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do? Is there medicine you take? There must be. No. You what? can't do anything for a virus. It's oh, like a cold. Yeah. Yeah. Once you have it, like the best that you it's can like do. like COVID. Mm-hmm, is treat this. You can treat the symptoms, but you can't treat the actual virus. You have to yeah. wait it out. You can keep your temperature down. Yeah. You can make sure that you're hydrated. You, you can make sure that you're like resting. And that's the best that you can do. Yeah. Wow. So rubella is the next on our list. And that's actually particularly dangerous, mainly to pregnant women. Because pregnant women can then give birth to children with genetic issues. Uh, or, um massive birth defects. Interesting. So maybe is that part of why people think this connection too? No. Oh, because I see it. You know what I mean? Like that could be a path. (laughs) It could be a path, but it is not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are risks to vaccination, but it is not nearly as risky as actually contracting the disease. Okay, so let's talk about the backstory behind the infamous MMR vaccine autism link. To start off with all of this, we have to remember, again, that the vaccine for the UK, MMR vaccine for brand the UK, new. had just come out. Pretty brand new. Or it had come out in 88. So at this point, it wasn't entirely brand new, but it was new enough in the grand scheme of things that yeah. it was scary to people. JABS is short for Justice, Awareness, and Basic Support. And this is a British special interest group formed by Jackie Fletcher in 1994. So Jackie claims her child was diagnosed with epilepsy 10 days after he received his MMR jab, which is the British slang for shot. Yeah. So aggressive, these jabbing jab and shot. She thought that her child had an injury from the vaccination, right? So that prompted her to put out an ad seeking, you know, vaccine-injured children. Yeah, she wanted like to a, connect and and form a basic like support group. Yeah, according to an article published in Private Eye, which was actually like pro jab, so keep that in mind. They said thirty families from a small community responded, and Jabs reported contacting over two thousand families by two thousand two. So Jabs, mainly Jackie, singled out the MMR vaccine as the source of a bevy of health issues experienced by their children, with complaints ranging from brain damage to inflammatory bowel disease, as well as autism and even shaken baby syndrome. At the time, the MMR vaccine had just come out, but by 1996, Jabs had 400 families willing to testify in a class action lawsuit against the Department of Health over alleged vaccine damage. So it's obvious that they're anti-vaccine. Yeah. But they describe themselves as vaccine critical. They're like, we know that vaccines are wonderful, but for some kids, it's dangerous. 
Yeah. It's just not for everybody. And that is technically yeah, that's true. fine. Technically. Technically true. Yeah. But I think the issue is that Jackie worked up all of these parents into a frenzy and then they blamed a vaccine without having any yeah. real evidence of uh-huh. it. And it just like got out of hand. Yeah. So Jackie is, Jackie and her group are the ones that came up with the MMR autism link. Okay. Uh, the U.S.-based National Vaccine Information Center describes jabs as instrumental in spreading misinformation, misdirecting health services, and facilitating the decline of vaccination rates below what is needed for herd immunity. Jabs was like getting all of this press, right? Saying we have vaccine-injured children, like you guys have fucked up and we deserve compensation. Now, Richard Barr is a solicitor. So a solicitor is essentially a legal practitioner who traditionally deals with most of the legal matters in some jurisdiction. He does a little bit of everything, but he previously specialized in property transfers and kind of was a glorified ambulance chaser. He's like one of those guys, right? So in 1992, he was seeing like the hubbub around all of this and he reached out to Jabs and he was like, listen, I hear you have vaccine injured children. I'm a lawyer. Let me represent you and get a little bit of that that scratch, that big pharma scratch. (laughs) (laughs) There was something that happened before this, which was in 1992, the heavily publicized withdrawal of Plucerix and Imravax, which were two brands of the newly released MMR vaccine due to mumps related meningitis risk. That that had already happened. So there was kind of a precedence for this. Yeah. Richard Barr was just like, well, if there's already a precedence for this, I'm going to go ahead and put my hat in. Yeah, See if for we sure. can get some fucking money. See if we can get some compensation. And, you know, to be to try to be, like, fair to him, maybe he was thinking, I want to help people. Yeah, right? Maybe. Maybe. Potentially. I doubt it. <laughs> Potentially. Maybe. Yeah, he's, like, helping people by proxy. Sure. <laughs> Why not? He found jobs, offered his services, and he began acting as our lawyer immediately. He applied to the legal aid program in England, which is for stuff like this so that people can, you know, actually have representation yeah. when it comes to things of this nature because it's fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, England wants everybody to have a fair shot at a trial. Mm-hmm. So there is legal aid available for pretty much anything, except now they don't do this kind of stuff. What do you mean like vaccine injury cases? Um, they won't they won't give to that. But because of the previous lawsuit and the previous like removal of those two brands yeah, they're, like, Mar, okay. they're like, yeah, we we can go ahead and give you some yeah. for this. Because they were going to take this to court and because they had to be able to prove it, Richard Barr was like, We can't just go in there with no evidence. Mm-hmm. And Jackie was like, So I I think I heard of someone who was working with this doctor who already talked about Crohn's and measles. Maybe he'd be interested in like doing a study and proving our case. (laughs) Oh my God. No. Yeah. Previously, Rosemary Keswick, who is the mother of a child with autism who served as CEO of the Allergy-Induced Autism Charity and is also like a person who knew and was, you know, one of the group of Jackie's jabs bullshit. Yeah. So she had contacted Wakefield in 1995 while he was conducting the Crohn's research. And she was looking for help with her child's bowel symptoms because he was having a really hard time and he also was autistic. It's reported that she was the person who first introduced Andrew Wakefield to the MMR autism theory and recommended him to Richard Barr. So all of those people are linked up. I'm not going to talk much about Jackie or Rosemary from here on out. It's just important to know that they were like part of a giant group of litigants yeah, for an MMR injury yeah. suit. So it was in 1996 that Richard Barr and Andrew Wakefield would actually start working together to discover a definitive link 
to the MMR vaccine and autism and also, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, all of that shit together. So Andrew actually started accepting money from the amount of money, like the donation from legal aid. Yeah. And he was actually charging 150 pounds sterling an hour, which is an exorbitant amount of money. (laughs) I think for, uh, at the time, every pound was worth $1.64. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So per hour, he was getting that. He said, Barr knew that there was a possibility of getting, quote, millions and millions of pounds in a legal settlement with vaccine manufacturers. Through Barr, Jabs had secured financial backing from legal aid. But also, because of the widespread publicity, legal aid provided additional funds after a while. Oh, wow. To actually do the research because you can't just go in there with like no fucking evidence. There's a whole bunch of autistic children and their parents. Well, and I guess this is like important if it really was like causing (laughs) this problem, they need to figure it out. So it makes sense why the government would like. Absolutely. Um, Richard Barr would later say, I am sure the manufacturers will try to discount any causal link between the vaccine and the damage suffered by the children. They will also argue that the benefits of being immunized far outweigh the risks from the vaccine. But we will argue that the dangers of these childhood disease have been exaggerated to terrorize parents into vaccinating their children. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he was like, we can go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt to some degree. But then he says some shit like that. Yeah, and like, like, what well, would the purpose of off, that man. be? They're trying to control us and make us have this stuff. Like, fuck off. We like are tracking ourselves on our phones. You know what I mean? Right. Like, we it's give like up Big Pharma all. don't have to do shit to you. Right. We're, just We're doing like, it. I do freely. accept these terms and conditions. Yeah. Like Please my track soul. my Please track my progress through this app. Thank you. <laughs> I want better ads. Um, so yeah, the the Royal Free Hospital was then contacted to participate in a clinical and scientific study on the subject using these funds, which of course Wakefield would be the leader. Wakefield later wrote, I can confirm that a grant will be established for the purpose given your written confirmation that there is no conflict of interest involved. The final paper didn't mention legal aid jabs or Richard Barr when disclosing the funding, only referencing special trustees. Richard Barr later (laughs) admitted to funding the study, saying, I remember noting at the time that the funding acknowledgement wasn't there, but it didn't seem to be a big deal because it just wasn't a big deal in those days. Like, yes, it fucking was. Yeah, because it's being funded by people who have a vested yeah. interest in getting a settlement. Oy vey, man. Wakefield alone during all of this, like during the study, would receive 435,000 pounds plus expenses. Wow. Yeah. So that's eight times his yearly salary from Royal Free Hospital, which was built. <laughs> so all of his things were built through a company belonging to his wife, Carmel. Huh. Yeah. Fucked up, right? Yeah. The monetary gain was entirely undisclosed and only revealed through a filing of the Freedom of Information Act by Mr. Brian Deere. It's like a scam. <laughs> Wakefield also applied for funding in June 1996 and was awarded an initial 55,000 pounds, but neglected to disclose those fundings also. Yeah. So the startup uh. funding was part of a staggering 26.2 million pounds of taxpayers' money. Jeez. Yeah. So let's talk about some notable co-authors. He had two people specifically that were called into question during the eventual, you know, losing of the medical licensure and retraction and all of that bullshit. Uh, One of them was Professor John Walker Smith, who is, well, he was a doctor. He's no longer living. He was a professor of pediatric gastroenterology at the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine with an honorary clinical contract with the Royal Free Hampstead NHS, NHS, 
S trust. That's such a that's mouthful. A, that's a lot. That's a lot. Walker Smith basically was dubbed the father of pediatric gastroenterology. And he was like a larger than life presence. They actually gave him an award for pediatric gastroenterology. It's called the Malcolm Ward. Wow. And that was for him. Wakefield requested him because he needed somebody who would bring children through and he would act as a clinician. So this was like the perfect setup for him. He's like notable in his field. He yeah. was the chief clinician on the project. And honestly, I just really feel sorry for this guy <laughs> because he… Yeah, he seems like a great He was like person. a nice great guy, a good doctor. And he really like revolutionized the field, you yeah. know? And then he gets in with this fucking asshole who is very charismatic, very aggressive, very pushy, and can kind of talk circles around people. And you'll see that kind of as it goes on. Now, the other person that he got was Dr. Simon Murch. I think he's now just Professor Simon Murch. He was a senior lecturer in pediatric gastroenterology with the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine with an honorary consultant contract with the Royal Free Hampstead NHS Trust. He completed his training in March 1995 with Walker Smith, who seemed to be a real mentor to him, from what I've read. Merch was brought into the study in a limited capacity, primarily acting as a clinician, performing and or overseeing various procedures such as lumbar punctures and colonoscopies. He was named on the application for Project 172-96, which is the study, as Responsible Consultant. In his general medical counsel hearing, it seemed as though the children he would end up performing procedures on were implied to be clinical admissions separate from the research study. Ah. So he said... What the fuck? He basically was just like, you know, I remember these things being like separate. So I had asked like, hey, it looks like these, these people that we're working on, these children are part of the study, but they don't seem to be labeled as part of the study, which like all of this con is confusing to me. Yeah. So I can understand how it, be, how it would be confusing to him. On February 28th, 1998, they released the now infamous study that linked children who purportedly had autism related from the MMR vaccination and bowel issues. They proposed a new syndrome known as autistic enterocolitis which is, I wrote, a theoretical syndrome that other gastroenterologists laugh about while lounging on their colon-shaped chaise launches. Because <laughs> it's not real. It's not a thing. So that's just kind of like autism lives in your gut. Yeah, they're, they're just like, listen, autistic people have inflammatory bowel disease that's been caused by measles just living there. Not true. Yeah. Not accurate. I mean, yeah, couldn't they do like some kind of study of the intestines? Do they? They sure do. And there's nothing. Nothing, my friends. <laughs> nothing. Oh my but, gosh. So according to the study, eight of the children's parents linked nebulous behavioral symptoms to the MMR, stating that the symptoms began within two weeks of the vaccination. Now remember that, two weeks. The paper went on to suggest possible triggers as MMR in eight of the cases and measles infection in one. So let's talk about how this was fucked up beyond just like all of it. Yeah. Every part of it. Um, I'm going to show you something now because I want you to see how much he lied about. And I had to make these notes because I was so fucking confused by the whole thing. Like, where are these numbers coming from? All of this chicken scratch is shit that he lied about. Wow. Which is literally every single thing. All of it is shit that he lied about. I had to make those notes because I was so confused by everything that I was reading. Yeah. Some children were reported to have experienced first behavioral symptoms within days of MMR, but the records documented these as starting some months after vaccination. Ah. So almost all of them say like, you know, 48 hours, one week. 16 days, 24 hours. But it's not. It's not even fucking close. Like some of these were like 
Some of them already had symptoms before they got their MMR vax. In nine cases, unremarkable colonic histopathology results, noting no or minimal fluctuations in inflammatory cell populations, were changed after a medical school research review to nonspecific colitis, meaning they didn't have symptoms of colitis at all. Oh, man. So they were changed to having symptoms of colitis. Probably so he had some kind of credibility because he has nothing to do with this shit. Oh, my God. The parents of eight children were reported as blaming MMR as the cause of their child's autism, but 11 families made this allegation. So he removed some of them because it looked bad. The exclusion of three allegations, all giving times to onset of problems in months, helped to create the appearance of a 14-day temporal link. So he was really big on this like happening within about 14 days for them. The last thing is patients were given medical procedures for which there was absolutely no indication. So to perform medical procedures on test subjects, you have to need to do it. Yeah. You can't just be like, we're going to give a whole bunch of five-year-olds colonoscopies. Yeah. Without a fucking reason. Yeah. So their reason was like non-specific colitis. So the primary doctors would go on to allege complete ignorance in the planned litigation, which would later be proven false in court. So Wakefield actually knew about it, obviously. Yeah. A memo from February 20th, 1997 from Walker Smith to Wakefield stated, it is clear the legal involvement by nearly all of the parents will have an effect on the study as they have vested interest. He did know about it at some point, but at the beginning of the study in 96, he didn't know yeah, that, that was Yeah, it's almost like he thing. was in too deep or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So he had, he had voiced concerns about it, but he didn't know it when the study was starting. Mm-hmm. I think he figured it out as it happens. Yeah. He said, never before in my career have I been confronted by litigant parents of a research work in progress. I think this makes our work difficult, especially publication and presentation. So he was already like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Yeah. Like he was, he was an honest guy. So let's talk about the methods. Wakefield worked separately with every doctor. The doctors did not work with each other. They worked with Wakefield and Wakefield compiled their research together. (laughs) So he was able to fool all of these people into believing that they were working on a project with scientific merit when they absolutely were not. Well, it's like, why would they think they weren't? Exactly. (laughs) You know? Like, why would you go into it thinking that this man who was, you know, in a position of trust in the hospital, who was able to convince the hospital to hire a professional pediatric gastroenterologist. Yeah. Why would you think that he was like doing some shady shit behind the scenes? Exactly. And he talks a good game. The methods were negligent at best and medical malpractice at worst. Wow. So... In scientific studies, informed consent is really important. There was no informed consent for the parents for colonoscopies, lumbar punctures, any of that shit. It was so vague. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like when you compare the, like an actual, you know, gastroenterologist colonoscopy risk assessment and informed consent form mm-hmm. and the what they gave the parents, nothing. Wow. Nothing. So for a pediatric colonoscopy, you know, children are small, Mm -hmm. their parts are small, and their tissues are thinner because all of them is smaller. Perforation is a huge risk. Yeah. If you're skilled at what you're doing, it's not as much of a risk as like, you know, falling on a knife if you're running with it. (laughs) Yeah. But it's it's a risk and it has to be talked about. And also sedation is a risk, you know, anesthetics risks. There are risks involved in all Mm -hmm. of this. And they just didn't give those risks to the children's parents at all. Did any of them have an injury? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Many of the children had colonoscopies. I don't actually have a full count on that. 
for some reason, but I want to say it was like eight. Eight of the 12 had colonoscopies wow. as indicated. Indicated clinically because of their nonspecific colitis. Most of the children actually had uh, not colitis, but constipation, severe constipation, which mm-hmm. is the normal thing that autistic children tend to have if they don't have like diarrhea. They have mm-hmm. constipation. A lot of the children had colonoscopies that were not indicated, especially considering that a lot of them had constipation and not nonspecific colitis. Yeah. But during the colonoscopy, tissue samples were collected. These tissue samples were then analyzed by a person who had created a type of testing for measles cells in the tissues that Andrew Wakefield said, yeah, totally. Let's check it off. Andrew Wakefield agreed to that testing. The testing came back. None of the children had measles in their tissue samples. That's not surprising. (laughs) Andrew Wakefield would later say that the testing was not sensitive enough, but the testing is so sensitive that it can sense a measles cell And I think they said something about like atomic levels. Wow. People looked over things and said, yeah, this test is so sensitive that if there were cells present in these samples, they would find them. Yeah. There would be no misinterpretation of the data. Yeah. But Andrew Wakefield said this wasn't sensitive enough and and that's why we didn't find them. So further testing is needed. One of the people said, you used to hear Wakefield's people talking about how they would win a Nobel Prize for this. So Brent Taylor said this of Royal Free's head of community child health. He said the atmosphere here was extraordinary. This is your warning that I'm about to talk about like horrible shit. Just absolutely awful, awful heartbreaking shit. I'm preparing with my my views. <laughs> I'm stressed, I got a vape for this. Skip the next three minutes and 43 seconds to avoid conversations about medical abuse of children. Abuse Nurses of children. reported that the children, and remember, all of these children, even though most of them were not diagnosed with autism, they were just, you know, diagnosed with behavioral symptoms that suggested autism, maybe, mm-hmm. or other disorders. I've obtained confidential letters between the then Dean of the Royal Free Medical School and a consultant in community child health. In July 1998, Professor Airy Zuckerman invited comments on the ethics of the research being carried out by Dr. Wakefield's team. He noted, I should add that I have voiced concerns in the past on aspects of these studies. Professor Brent Taylor, a Wakefield critic, responded, I've had concerns about the ethics of this research from the inception, particularly the issue of gaining informed consent from the children, and also the invasive and extensive nature of the investigations. The Royal Free say they were entirely satisfied that Dr Wakefield's research was subjected to rigorous and appropriate ethical scrutiny. I'm told the medical school has advised staff not to speak to me, but to give you some idea of the high level of concern over the care of autistic children taking part in research here, let me read you the opinion of one consultant given to me over the telephone. I feel the whole show was in terrible turmoil, he said. Nurses were leaving and saying they didn't like what was being done to these children. Junior doctors were unhappy. It needed three people to hold these kids down in some cases just to have blood taken. These are difficult children to explain to what is going on. I feel very sorry for the children who I feel were being abused. A lot of them went through repeated colonoscopies and were heavily sedated multiple times. And these are children five and under? These are very young children. So I think most of them were around the age of five to maybe six. There was a nine-year-old, and I think there was one... Yeah, most of them were like five or six, one nine-year-old. 
bunch Jeez. of seven-year-olds, some four-year-olds, some three-year-olds. So all of them had, God. you know, blood draws. A lot of them had lumbar punctures, which, you know, you have to hold still for that. So they would have to hold them still to yeah. get a needle put in their back to get these lumbar punctures. The colonoscopies, some of them had repeated colonoscopies, which is fucking unacceptable. And to be repeatedly sedated for multiple things during a six-day period, it's just, it's fucking torture. Yeah. It's torture to these like poor little people, you yeah. know? One child actually ended up having his bowel perforated a few times and ended up having to be in intensive care and now needs round-the-clock care for his injuries that he sustained because he had like an infection, oh an internal God. infection from the perforations because, you know, if gut fluid leaks yeah. into the rest of your body, you will have mass organ failure. Yeah, you can get sepsis. What, what would the reason be for doing repeat colonoscopies? Yeah, you know what? It doesn't even make sense. But I know that because some of them had like constipation, they had a hard time getting scopes through. Oh, that makes sense. So maybe that was part of the issue. Like they had to like, I'm assuming they probably had to give some of them enemas because yeah. they were backed up. And some of them were so backed up. Like one child was so backed up that he had to have multiple packs of laxatives every day. Wow. Just to be able to poop. You know, when it's clinically indicated like, hey, we need to figure out why this is happening, then it, it makes sense. But to repeatedly do this to children who have nonspecific colitis. Yeah. Which is, you know, they didn't have yeah. nonspecific colitis. They didn't have any colitis. Remember, this wasn't like a proper research study. This was 12 children. Yes. Only 12. That's not enough for a clinical like yeah. research study. But at the end of the paper, they said we don't have any direct causal link. Yeah. For MMR vaccine causing, you know, autistic enterocolitis. And that should have just autism. like been the end of it. And that should have been the <laughs> yeah. end. But Royal Free Hospital, my friend, was like, we got to get on top of this. We're going to get some media. Remember, they were broke. Yeah, it just like becomes about meeting their goal instead of... They hired themselves a little film crew. You know what? Based on the repeated talking points that, that Wakefield says in like interviews later, he always says, there's sufficient anxiety in my mind to remove the MMR vaccine from circulation in favor of a single measles, mumps, and rubella jab. He says that repeatedly. My opinion is that the risk is related to the combined vaccine, the MMR, suspended in favor of the single vaccines. The single vaccines are likely in this context to be safer. Giving the measles on its own reduces the risk of this particular syndrome developing. Sufficient anxiety. So it makes me think that they worked with like a PR team yeah. to figure out like the best way to approach all of this business. Yeah. So they had like a little 23-minute video that they pushed out to like media everywhere. Yeah. And all of a sudden the media were like, oh, holy shit, you guys. We got this new thing. We're going to be yeah. all on top of it. And by the by, at this time, Jabs was still like really seeking out media attention to support their claims yeah. that their autistic children had been injured by the MMR vaccine. So yeah. that was already happening in the background the whole time the study was going on. Yeah. The whole time. You know, I think you can get those vaccines separate. You can, but they're not as effective separate. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really fucking weird. And I, you know what? I didn't do much research into that. I just remember like watching doctor after doctor after like scientists, after like, you know, virologists, mm -hmm. all of that shit 
they're all like, there's no reason. They're not as effective. It's better to get them all at once and to get them quickly rather than spacing out the dosing. It yeah, and not having sense. to give your kids so many shots. Yeah, like the the reason they put them all together is to to avoid having to constantly. <laughs> yeah, and like minimize doctor anxiety for kids. Exactly. Get it one and done and just be over with it mm-hmm. instead of like spacing it out and giving your child more of a risk of having to, because you need two of them. There are two. Yeah. So if you space everything out, it's too much. There's too much risk of your child coming into contact with the virus and then getting sick anyway. Mm -hmm. And even then, like even if you get both of your jabs, you can still get sick if you've had contact with the virus before or directly after. Yeah. So there's too much risk to, to space it out like that. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Here's where the really insidious stuff happens. He was pushing, 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 saying there's no causal link, but there's sufficient anxiety. That was the big thing. And this actually started a measles outbreak. All of the media attention, everybody focusing on like, does the measles vaccine cause autism? That was like the big talking point. And it doesn't matter that he said there's no causal link. Okay, yeah, because I like remember this in the media. Yeah, 2002, I think, is when the, the measles outbreak finally like like really happened. And I think the first measles death, but there have been multiple measles outbreaks and some have taken down towns. Wow. Yeah, like it's fucking dangerous. It's so dangerous to get the measles. It's like not something to fuck around with. I mean, think about like our present world or whatever though now. It's like we've been going through a pandemic and people don't want to get vaccinated. And I don't really know how much that plays into this whole thing, you know, which, you know, it it must. It does because he actually, he actually supported Trump. And Trump actually brought him into like one of his, I want to say it was like some conference or something and had him talk. Oh my God. So it's like all of this is related. All of it's related. And it's based on this fucking douchebag who made up evidence. Yeah. He fully fucking to like a win a fraudulent prize. asshole to like win a Nobel Prize, which I don't know how he thought that that was going to happen. Brian Deere would later write, neither school nor hospital stood on the sidelines. They threw their weight behind Wakefield. In the buildup to the press conference, they installed extra phone lines and answering machines to field the expected panic and distributed to broadcasters a 23-minute video news release showcasing Wakefield's claims. So Brian Deere is the journalist, the writer of this book. He was actually told like, hey, why don't you cover the MMR vaccine by the the Times, which is the paper that he was, you know, working for. And he was actually like kind of a big deal. He he had already made a name for himself based on discovering evidence of bad behavior from a scientist who had said that there was like there was a contraceptive pill that had been released and the scientist had falsified data to say that there was no cardiovascular risk associated with it. And he found like all this evidence that there was cardiovascular risk. So that was like him making a name for himself. Yeah. But in that study, he was actually supported by a pharmaceutical company who had gotten their like dipped their toes into like the research end because they weren't really making a whole lot of money on making new pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So they were like, well, we're just going to research pharmaceuticals then. They had um, funded that investigation, but his publisher was like, look, we need some coverage on this. Do you want to do this? And he was like, I'm not interested in doing this. Let's just wait until the litigation is done. But then the, the litigation had been just dropped for whatever reason, I guess. Could you imagine like going into court or like, you know, submitting documents and just being like, you know, maybe. <laughs> no causal link, but sufficient anxiety. Oh, okay, yeah, you get millions of dollars then. So yeah, he had done all of this and he was just like, uh, I have no interest in doing this shit, talking to people who, you know, think that there's vaccine injury. Like, let's just wait until the thing is done and then 
whatever, I'll cover it when it's finished. And then it's like pushed off to the side. And he was like, okay, well then I'll just study the actual study because that's what started all of this because he needed something Little to did publish. he know this story would change his life. Seriously though. I know. <laughs> like he started looking into it and he just like, everything started stacking up. He was like, hold yeah. on, hold on a fucking minute here. Like yeah. as he was researching, finding out the links to Richard Barr, finding out the links to Jads, yeah. finding out that almost all of the uh, parents were involved in the litigation. And in fact, you'll find out later, one of them ended up going into business with Wakefield. <laughs> this is like super yucky that the parents like were so interested in the money. They were comfortable with the doctors, like doing all sorts of weird shit. I think they just wanted to have some way to support their children. Like, yeah. I think some of them were kind of shady, but I think all of them were like, I'm going to have to take care of this child for the rest of his life and past my life. I yeah. need to make sure that he's covered. Yeah, totally. The, the child who was like severely injured ended up getting a, almost a million dollars out of the lawsuit. But he also needs around-the-clock care. And at the time that he got the settlement, he was 14 years old. Wow. So it's like, Jesus Christ, man. That's so fucked up. That sucks. But yeah, Deer started researching and he started like releasing papers on the Times. And these papers were not complimentary to Andrew Wakefield. And Andrew yeah. Wakefield does not like it when people don't like him. <laughs> so he started a um, libel suit against Brian Deer. He was wow. like, listen, I'm just going to shut this motherfucker up. And Royal Free was like a part of it. He was like, you know, at this point, Deer had like found so much information and had repeatedly tried to talk to Andrew Wakefield. And Andrew Wakefield had been like, no, I want to. I'm not interested. I'm not going to talk to you because you just don't like me that much. Yeah. Like, that's not exactly what he said. <laughs> Boo -hoo. Scaredy cat. So he had continued to do his research. He had released a Channel 4 documentary. Andrew Wakefield was trying to sue for libel. Brian Deer, Channel 4, and The Times. He was like, that's fine. I'll just shut you up by suing you. But what that ended up doing is giving Brian Deer complete access to right? all <laughs> of the medical files. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So, yeah, he was given all of the medical records. What an he was idiot. given all of the communication. And to to be fair to Andrew Wakefield, they tried, it was kind of like a slap suit. Have you heard of a slap suit? I think so. Like where you just like throw a lawsuit at somebody expecting them not to like follow through and settle outside of court? Sort of. You throw a lawsuit at someone, it's usually for libel. And then you keep pushing for a later court date. So that oh. your idea is to make it so expensive to pursue the litigation that the person just drops it. Oh, right? got it. Cause, yeah. Because they don't have any more money yet or like you're scaring them. Yeah. Right? Because you have the money to just throw at this lawsuit for as long as it takes to get them to shut the fuck up. Yeah. I think Andrew Wakefield and Royal Free wanted to throw this out as like a slap suit. Like just shut the fuck up. Stop talking about it. Yeah. Stop it. But what ended up happening is… Everyone got behind Brian Deere and was like, no, fuck you. <laughs> Brian Deere got legal aid to fight this. And he actually ended up being compensated by Andrew Wakefield and Royal Free wow. for the money that he ended up having to spend. Because <laughs> he ended up spending an additional, like, he had to take a lien out on his house to cover oh court costs. But These he was guys, like, I will fucking go. They did not go? have much foresight. I know. It's like, did you not think about this? But finally, like one judge was like, no, I think you're doing this for publicity and I'm not interested. So yeah. cough up the fucking documentation and stop fucking around. Let's get this done. Andrew Wakefield and Royal Free finally ended up just being like, no, 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 thanks. Never mind. We don't need to do this. 
<laughs> he paid for his court fees. Oh, man. But because he had gotten all <laughs> of this information. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's 100% like that. Because he had gotten all of this information, he was like, oh, well, you're fucking toast. So he compiled all of this information, ended up taking it to General Medical Council, and it became part of their information that they used against Andrew Wakefield, John Walker Smith, and Simon Murch well, good. later on. While all of the Channel 4 documentary hoopla and all of that shit was going on, there was a new um, head of medicine at Royal Free, and he walked in not liking Wakefield. He actually walked in like he was courted by Royal Free. And he was like a, a hot shot. I think he was like a cardiovascular. Like, God damn it. Like yeah. <laughs> he was like, I don't fucking like him. He needs to go. And what they ended up doing was promoting Wakefield. So oh, that no. The guy wouldn't have to work with him, I guess. <laughs> it's the only thing that makes sense in my mind. I don't know why they fucking chose that, but whatever. He had his eyes like locked on Wakefield. He was like, I don't like this. I think yeah. it's unethical. I don't appreciate this. This is not scientific. This is not okay yeah. to do. So he really like started setting his sights on Wakefield to like get him to either prove the fucking theory with a proper study or shut the fuck up uh -huh. and leave. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, listen, Royal Free will completely back you as long as we can oversee your study. We will give you 150 patients to work with and you can prove your theory. Oh my God. Did he not want to? Initially, he said yes, but he kept pushing the date back. Oh, God. Because he's he like, fuck, this is oh, it. Oh, I can't. I can't fake like that on super this embarrassing. I know it's humiliating, right? Especially because so, he's a narcissist. Yeah. So he's we like. We just like call everyone a narcissist. Let's rename our podcast. But he actually is a narcissist. Oh, 100%. I mean, 100%. <laughs> on another episode of This Old Narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, he he kept pushing the dates back. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm totally going to do that study. But like. I just need like three or four more weeks. No, I'm totally going to do it, but I need like three or four more months. He's so like I'm, trying I'm to find out how to do leave it. The country. Like, <laughs> Look, I'm going to do it. It's just like a busy time in my life right now. And finally, this guy was like, no, do it now or leave. So he forced him to retire. He chose to retire. So he chose to retire rather than proving his theory. Yeah, but what because he, he said, knew it was wrong. Because he knew it was fake. Oh my God. He knew all of it was falsified. So what he ended up saying was like, I just didn't feel like it was okay to have my scientific process like micromanaged by like... Well, he should have felt thankful that something that he believed in was being <laughs> funded and like given the appropriate stuff to have a real study. Yeah, you would think that he would, but... Because then, you know, he could like continue moving forward and like maybe find some other link, you know, like still solve this problem. Right. But he didn't really want to solve the problem. No, his problem. Yeah. His problem was his like ego. But yeah. So he was actually, he left with two years salary. The Royal Free had a gag order because that was the only way they were going to get him to walk away. He, so the, the new head of medicine basically said, I paid him off to fucking <sighs> go. I just wanted him gone. <laughs> yeah. So, but he was also given intellectual rights to his study for 10 pounds, which he never ended up paying for. But I think it was just like, yeah, sure, fucking take it. We don't even give a shit. Yeah. But with the, the study of 150 people, they were going to give him full rights for free to but that he intellectual just didn't property. Wanna. It's not a deal for him if he knows that he can't make it happen, you know? All right. So some of the documents that Brian Deere got as a result of this ridiculous libel lawsuit were not great for Andrew Wakefield. And they <laughs> revealed the entirety of his 
backhanded dealings with various organizations. We talked about Carmel Limited, which was uh, essentially like a, a private company that Carmel Wakefield, his wife or his ex-wife now, and Andrew had kind of started together to control like all of the money. Yeah, they were like laundering money. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, they were, right? I mean, they were doing everything above board, but it was just so shady that it might as well have been laundering. Right, because it's like taking the money. They weren't admitting that they were receiving money. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 really shady. It's not technically laundering, but it's it's like laundering light. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we discussed the jabs and Richard Barr thing. That was already bad enough. So following the publicity push from Royal Free, it was also found that Wakefield had, with various other people, drawn up contracts about getting about $2.1 million from investors, which, you know, would have been great if the study was based on any sort of factual information, but it wasn't. He had another company called Immunospecifics, which was supposed to be for... (laughs) patents that he had for single doses of measles vaccines, which he had already patented along the same time that he was meeting up with like the jabs people and Rosemary Kessick and all that. He had also patented a Crohn's measles test, which did not work, but he had that patent. So immunospecifics was supposed to be like his business to release this. Yeah. Yeah. To release his single dose that was going to replace the MMR vaccine. To re- to release, you know, the Crohn's testing that was going to find measles cells in colons. But he <laughs> he actually started immunospecifics with one of the parents of a child that was in the study. So that's even more but fucked yeah, up. Yeah, so much like sketchy money stuff. He also had patented a cure for autism. That relied heavily on transfer factor. Transfer factor is a fringe technology that used protein cells to boost immunity. Immunity to what? Like in general? I mean, if you think that autism is caused by measles in the bowel, I guess that that would make sense. But since it fucking isn't. And transfer factor also doesn't actually work as far as I can tell. Like I think it's used sometimes as a treatment for like MS and things of that nature. But I, I have seen no evidence of it. Like any Uh, like real research into whether or not it helps people. So it's kind of just a, it's like a thing that they sell at autism conferences as like a cure-all, right? Like this is going to make your kid healthy. And I don't know if like autistic people are more prone to like getting various illnesses or if it's just the bowel stuff that they're trying to treat. The autism cure that he patented was actually patented with a co-author named Hugh Feudenberg. That's a wonderful name. Yeah, Hugh Hugh H. Feudenberg. Yeah, that's good. So he is another ex-doctor. He is now deceased, but he was the first person to create a link between autism and the MMR vaccine. Professor Fudenberg has long been controversial. In 1989, he was caught up in a bizarre lawsuit involving the Food and Drug Administration, which told him he had to stop injecting his autistic child patients with blood products. Then in 1995, he was suspended from practicing medicine and made to pay a $10,000 fine for his misuse and misprescribing of controlled drugs. The professor is semi-retired, but still charges up to $750 an hour to treat autistic children. He's the grandfather of the MMR scare and first published allegations of a link with autism a decade before Dr Wakefield. Now, Dr Wakefield also claimed at one point to have discovered a treatment, possibly a complete cure, for wrong. autism. He was wrong. You want to get me involved in that, I would have a part of it. 
didn't make sense to me. I forget what it was, but it didn't make sense. That was the one with the goats? Yeah. That didn't make any sense then? No. So where was he getting that from? I don't know, it's just a wild idea, I guess. He wants nothing more to do with the pregnant goat capsules. He says he's invented a better treatment, which he makes in his kitchen. Now, using this technology, do you believe that autism can be cured? Yes. Cured? Yes. It's cheap, it's oral, no injections. One pill a day, every other day for three or six months. And where, where does that come from? From my bone marrow. From your own personal bone yeah. marrow? I mean, that's, that seems extraordinary. Yeah. That's strange. And gross. All of this trading was fronted by Carmel Healthcare Limited, all centered on the vaccine scare, the unproven syndrome of autistic enterocolitis, and a thing that was actually written in the papers was, like, in the... Like the margins or whatever? Yeah. It was litigation-driven testing of patients with autistic enterocolitis from both the UK and the USA. The goal was to raise an initial 700,000 pounds from investors with an estimated return of 3.3 million, rising to 28 million starting at year three. Oh, my God. So it's just like not even, there's no way to misinterpret any of yeah. this. It's like, it's all about money. Yeah. Because you can't fudge all the fucking data on papers and then say that this isn't about money because you don't actually uh -huh. give a shit about autistic children. Yeah. It's very clear because you didn't find any fucking evidence. If you didn't find evidence and you cared about autistic children, you'd go back to the fucking drawing board. Yeah, and you'd take that bigger study to see like, well, maybe it's something with more people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like he didn't even believe his own shit. Yeah, he knew that it wasn't going to work. There's wow. just so much of this kind of shit. And around the same time, he was also uh, courting various giant pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson and taking payouts from them to like travel to them to work as a consultant. Like that was like in the works for him. Yeah. Around this time, he was also working for various like centers for autism or centers yeah. of support, like as consultants. So he was raking in millions of dollars. And what year is this now? Started in 1999 that he started taking all this money. This continued going, like he continued receiving large amounts of money until probably around like 2007, 2008, when people really started catching on. Once the documentary of Brian Deers came out, a lot more people started getting the MMR vaccine in the UK. Wow, and the yeah. Brian Deer documentary actually was released, I think, in 60 Minutes in America, too. Yeah. Because it was that fucking good. Yeah. Like, it's, it's really like worth to a watch. I watch it, yeah. It's totally worth a watch. He's, and he, he shows himself also, like, trying to interview, like, actively trying to interview Andrew Wakefield. And Andrew Wakefield will, like, turn to him thinking that he's a fanboy. And then he's like, hi, Brian Deer from Channel 4. And he's like, runs away. Oh, my God. He's <laughs> like, my God. <laughs> out of here. Like, he seriously has no fucking, he's got no gumption. Jeez Louise. He was working with Hugh Funenberg, who had already been an ex-doctor for a while for drug abuse and also stealing drugs. <laughs> oh, from. my God. But he had his license suspended permanently for years before that. That's a good person to choose to work with, <laughs> right? Yeah, and he apparently like really worked with him. But even Hugh Feudenberg was like, I didn't think his shit was going to work. Even a man who was a fucking crank said, that man is a crank. Oh my God. I know, isn't that insane? It is insane. So around the time that all of this shit started really hitting the fan, he decided to move to America and actually moved to Austin. So he could, I think he was working at that time with a few different centers for autism, one being in Florida, one being one that he opened in Texas. And then he was a consultant 
in a variety of places. Yeah. So he was still making a lot of money. And his specific business was raking in like just from donations that I could see. Total revenue the first year in 2010 was $226,000, which, you know, doesn't seem like that much for a business. But like when you consider all of his other dealings mm -hmm. and the fact that he was actively touring, <laughs> like talking at conferences yeah. and that can get you a lot of money. Uh -huh. he, he was making money hand over fist. And he was also like still actively traveling traveling as a consultant yeah, for just like for being various a liar. businesses. Just for being a fucking liar, that man. That is crazy. Yeah. After he was fired from Royal Free, like all of this kind of imploded around the same time. The General Medical Council got all of the information from Brian Deere, who is, you know, more than happy to help. <laughs> and they started looking into it. And it actually took two and a half years for them to fully go through all of the documentation and figure out what the fuck Andrew Wakefield had done. And by wow. that point, they were like, oh, yeah, you're not going to be a doctor anymore. Yeah. We're not interested in that. Yeah, um, good. They found Professor Simon Murch not guilty. Yeah. They, they found that he was acting on good faith, that he was being told the truth. Totally. And for yeah. the, the child who had the perforated intestines from the colonoscopy, he didn't actually do it. He had, because it was a teaching hospital too, Oh. he had let somebody else do it and had only like consulted on it. Oh. So that was unfortunate and he regretted that, but it wasn't technically his fault. Yeah, right? and it's kind of like what he's supposed to do. Yeah. Um, it's just unfortunate that that happened. Walker Smith, his licensure was revoked, but he was able to appeal and prove his innocence and that he wasn't a part of it, that he actually tried to help. <laughs> he tried yeah. to like, you know, raise alarm. Like, yeah. hey, this isn't right, man. Like, I don't feel good about this. Yeah. And that Royal Free was heavily involved in mm -hmm. covering up. And so yucky. It's, it's just, just like, so fucking nasty. Yeah. When that happened, he was already in Austin living with Carmel and his mm -hmm. four children. He basically just responded to it. There's this amazing Anderson Cooper interview, which I'll put clips from. Mm -hmm. But he was just like, you know, it's a conspiracy against me. And Big Pharma doesn't want me to release the things that I know. When like Brian Deere is working for pharmaceutical companies who oh want to take me down. Starting tonight, the journal is publishing a series of articles by an investigative journalist, Brian Deere, who spent seven years uncovering the bogus data behind Wakefield's claims. I confronted Dr. Wakefield earlier by Skype. Sir, according to this new report, not only did you do a study that was scientifically and ethically flawed, it was, quote, an elaborate fraud. An award-winning investigative journalist, Brian Deere, has published evidence that you, and I quote, altered numerous facts about patients